0: Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus.
1: Hey everybody, how are we today? Good, man. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. If you want to say hi, I camp out right over here after the service. But before we get into our text this morning, today's a really good day. They're all good days, but today's a different kind of good because we get to celebrate something at the beginning. I'm going to ask Dick Knight if you want to come up here. Uh, so as an independent Bible church, that means I get to do whatever I want. I love this job. <laughs> Um, no, but what it means is that we can kind of set the rules and the tone on, on leadership structure. And we have really great leaders and good elder boards and good oversight. Uh, but this is my friend, Dick, Dick, say hi. Good morning. Into the mic. Good morning. There it is. (laughs) Don't Uh, need one of
0: these where I preach. (laughs)
1: That's right. So, hey, so let me tell you about ordination a little bit at CBC. Ordination is when a church comes alongside of somebody and does one of two things. If you're new to the ministry, a lot of churches in different uh, sects of, of faith in, in, in the Christian orthodoxy will make you take a bunch of tests and prove that you're not going to do a disservice to the gospel. But then there's also another kind of ordination when we recognize a minister of the gospel and we say, hey, I recognize what God has done in and through you for decades. And today we get to celebrate the latter. So Dick, will you just tell the people why we haven't seen you in church for like 10 years? Because I'm starting to get offended.
0: It's... It it's actually been a lot longer, but you awesome. weren't in charge back in those days.
1: <laughs> I only care when I took over. That's, no,
0: I'm kidding. Uh, I, I have uh, I've been blessed with the, uh, with the ministry and the senior care facilities around us. Uh, some of you have run into me there with your parents, uh, but for the last 17 years, this will be 18 wow. coming in May, this is where I hang out. Uh, I've not deserted you. I listened to Charlie on Tuesday, <laughs> yeah. so that I can give him. Well, he tells me not to critique, and that's part of that
1: prayer. That's right? why it <laughs> happened, right? Yeah, the emails are too much.
0: Yeah. But, but uh, I, I get, I get. I've I've already been to church once today. I've, yeah. I, we had a 9:30 service at Pinewood Hills. Uh, my the folks over there otherwise don't get to celebrate Christ.
1: Yeah. They're so- They're not able to get out and go. If you guys have been around here for a while, you remember before we did Love Pack Sunday, we took a Sunday um, for about three years, and we took hundreds of people, and we divided us all into teams, and we went to five, six, seven different senior care facilities in the area, and we put on church, and that's what Dick does every single Sunday, and then during the week, he leads Bible studies, he walks in there and knows the people, He, he pastors these people. And so, for years and years, he's been a pastor to this community that's often overlooked. I see no better representation of the gospel than that. So, Dick, real quick, just tell me what's maybe your favorite part of what you do, and then what do you what do you teach these people? Well,
0: the te- the teaching comes from here. Let me let me let me just you just tell take you. my
1: ser- my sermons and you. Uh,
0: no, I don't give you always always give you credit, but sometimes <laughs> I do can, use material. I, I do use material that Charlie uses, but yeah. I sometimes give him credit and sometimes not. <laughs> that's okay. It's like,
1: it depends but, on how it's received.
0: But, but to me, there's only one thing to teach, and that's Jesus. Yeah. And, and I got that here. Cindy and I have been coming to this church for 29 years this month. And all of my teaching has come from you, this body of believers, in classrooms, in the old building, in this building, on Sunday mornings. So there's only one thing I knew to teach, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do. I do tell you that it's great to meet new friends. It's sad when we lose them, mm-hmm. uh, but you all know that. Uh, I just get to lose more, yeah. I guess, because that's that's the service we're in, and and I, I can't I can't tell you the joy it brings every day. But at the same time, there's there's always difficulties. People make everything difficult, don't they? Mm. <laughs> I told Charlie this on Thursday, I said, his, his problems are just more people. I have less people, same problems.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: And that's okay, because my job every Sunday is to get up and let them know Jesus loves them. That's right. And my job every Sunday is to let them know that no matter what pain they're in, no matter what suffering they're going through, Jesus will fix it.
1: Yeah. Watch out, my sermon time, not yours. Hey, I think, um <laughs> get it. Uh, no, but seriously, I, I've been a part of what you do, I've watched what you do, I think the most valuable thing we can do as a church, we're going to talk about today, is, is just the simple ministry of presence, I think Jesus modeled that really well when he walked um, amongst His place for 33 years, and you do that incredibly well, and so it is, on behalf of the Elder Board and all the authorities at CBC, my honor and joy and privilege to call you a friend and a brother and all that, and then today, too, officially, uh, just ordain you as a minister of the gospel from Crossroads. So we're just putting a title to what God has been doing in and through you for years, man. Yeah.
0: I love you guys. Hi, Thank buddy. you for doing that. Oh my gosh. Thanks. Yeah. Great life.
1: What? It's a great life.
0: It is a great life. Yeah. I'm going gonna,
1: I'm gonna to pray for Dick. And I'm going to pray for what he does. Let me pray for you, brother. God, I'm thankful that we are the body of Christ. I'm thankful that we're in this together. I'm thankful that as Pascal says, you give us the dignity of causality, that you allow us to join in your mission and your movement of restoring goodness and wholeness to a broken world. I pray as we continue to endeavor in that mission and in that journey, you give us grace, you give us patience, you give us hope, and you give us a supernatural love for your people to be with Dick as he continues to minister, as he continues to preach the gospel, as he continues to love people who are often overlooked, that they might see there's hope in God and they might see that he's good. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Yeah. I'm good to go home now if you guys are. That was the best part of my day. And I know what I'm going to say next. Uh, a couple things, we're going to dive into the second week of our series on hospitality. I was in here when Delin asked, how many of you changed your perspective on hospitality after last week? And in a room of a few hundred, I saw a few hands go up, everybody. So I'm going to reteach last week's message now. Uh, <laughs> joking, joking. But hey, I really do think this conversation for us, if you're new this week and not last week, if you think this is the first Sunday of the year, welcome. Um, we... Uh, we're in this series on hospitality because every January we go through, we teach through in three or four weeks, a new spiritual rhythm, discipline, practice, whatever word you want to use. And we do that because what these practices, disciplines, or rhythms allow us to do is grow more into Christ-likeness than we would without them. That's why the disciples practiced them and Jesus practiced them, whether it's prayer or fasting or Sabbath or simplicity or any of the above or hospitality. We do these things because they're rhythms in our life that God uses to get us somewhere we wouldn't get otherwise. We define spiritual disciplines as the way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing our hearts. So last week we talked about this idea of hospitality, beginning with, as we looked at the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, beginning with the idea that hospitality starts when we begin to let people in. When we invite those who don't feel invited, when we look at those who feel overlooked, that we need to be a church of invitation because hospitality is at the heart of the gospel. And if you miss hospitality, you miss the heart of God, because that's exactly what God did for you. It was a really good sermon. It should have changed your opinion more, right? No, but I think this week... We take it a step farther. This week we could talk about not just the invitation aspect of hospitality, and, but, but, but what's next, what we invite people to. Before we get into the sermon, Andy mentioned it, at CBC we fundamentally believe that the church is different than the world outside this place. Our posture is different. Our prayer life is obviously different. Our priorities are different. And, and, and the world around us is an incredibly critical place because we're both prideful and insecure at the same time. We take it out on others. And so in this space for the next few minutes, we're going to set that aside and recognize that God is here and the Holy Spirit speaks to his people, the spirit that lives in you and through his word. And so for the next few minutes, we're going to set aside our overly critical nature of the world instills in us and ask the simple question, how is God going to speak to you this morning? Because he is, if you listen, because he's going to move us if we, if we let him to see the goodness of God in ways we might've missed. At CBC, we like to say that the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. It starts by changing us on the inside, and that changes everything around our world on the outside. So we're just gonna pray and set our hearts right that God might work in us, move in us, and that we might see him this morning. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful that we're here, that we get to celebrate just a community of believers taking on the mantle and mission of God together. That's a joyful thing, that we are not alone, and that your goodness is spreading. As we open the scriptures this morning, the Holy Spirit, move in this place. Convict us where conviction is necessary. Give us joy where we need joy. Give us hope in all things. If you're comfortable, just say a quick prayer to yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to move in your spirit this morning that you might see God. I also ask you to pray for me, that I might do a good job at clearly representing the heart of God and hospitality this morning. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, I got hired at this place 14 years ago, and I was a part-time middle school director, pastor, whatever name you want to give me. I quickly moved up to full-time because I realized I wasn't going to poison the youth of Flower Mound, and, and then I took over the high school group a couple years later, and um, there's not a whole lot of weekends where I wish I was back doing that. Loved it for a time and place, but I realized pretty quickly that I don't know what they're talking about anymore, and it's very difficult to relate. This weekend is one of those weekends I wish I was a youth pastor again, because this weekend is when our high school students go to this retreat we call No Agenda. Now, if you don't know what that is, no agenda, I inherited from the guy before me, and it's a weekend where we take our students and we go to this camp, it was Pine Cove, now it's Sky Ranch, and literally the agenda is no agenda, we mean it. I remember the first time I took a group of kids to Pine Cove, it was a high school group, Uh, it was a pretty large group, and we'd get there, and and the Pine Cove director at that camp comes up to me, he says, hey man, what do you need this weekend? I said, nothing. He said, "Uh, who's your speaker? And I said, we don't have one. He said, who's your band? I said, not gonna happen, buddy. He said, how many times are you guys doing gatherings a day? I said, we are not, sir. (laughs) And, And he looked at me and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, we're having a no agenda weekend. And he asked, why? And I said, because I think it's really important in our current context and culture to see that God moves in the little moments and not just the mountaintop ones. There's a quote that I love from a book that I love called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And this Anglican priest Talks about how, as a church, some of our actions have shaped how we follow Jesus together. And some have positive consequences, some have negative. And she talks about the church as this concert venue approach. Once a week, we go to and we get filled up. And this is what she says. She says, if we make spiritual formation all about big, fancy, mountaintop experiences, which often happen when we create them at church, we aren't giving them tools, people, tools, for which they become more holy the rest of the week. We're enslaving them to to get their spiritual highs from us. We become spiritual drug dealers. The only food we've been giving them is feasts, and sometimes you have to make a peanut butter sandwich. We live in a culture that believes in the proliferation of big. Our state motto in Texas is, It's smaller in Texas. Wait, I got that wrong, and you want to kick me out, right? Our motto in this state is it's bigger in Texas. Jerry Jones built the biggest screen in the history of the world, he got outdone by LA, and this summer he's gonna make his bigger to one up the LA people. I heard in our community that when Flower Mound built their football stadium and Marcus read theirs, Marcus put in one more seat than Flower Mound did because bigger is better. We live in a community of proliferation where we, we seek these mountaintop experiences and call that formation, and those are good. Please don't mishear me. We all have them. I need them. They are benchmarks in our growth, but they're not the steadiness that we need to keep growing. I think today what I want to talk about, when we talk about hospitality, last week was the table of, of uh, invitation. This week is the table of the ordinary. How does God use the everyday to shape us into followers of Jesus? And why is hospitality at the very center of that? There's a woman I'm going to quote a couple times today. She wrote a book called Ordinary Hospitality, and her name is Rosaria uh, Rosaria Butterfield. She said, for Christians to maintain an authentic Christian witness to a world that mistrusts us, we must be transparently hospitable. This idea that if we don't have trust, where do we begin in a hostile world that needs the hospitality of God? So, so like I said last week, I'll repeat. Today is an invitation. It's an invitation to practice this rhythm of life. So some people feel like they have time and some don't. Some people might be able to do this every week, some every month, maybe some every quarter, or maybe one, every, some people once a year. This is simply an invitation to live in a way that Jesus lived so that you might look more like him. We're not a legalistic church. We're not saying you have to do this to get in the doors here. We're simply saying this might be something if the Holy Spirit wells it up inside of your spirit that makes you grow more like Jesus. So let's listen to him this morning. So our text today is in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I'll read it to begin. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. Now, before we move on, I want to say something. This story this morning is simply a type for me and us. You can go to several stories in the New Testament. It's a type of of something that Jesus did often to prove that he believed in the idea of the ordinary or in our sense, meals together. Because you have to understand something if you want to understand how Jesus worked and formed in the New Testament. Meals were central to the mission of Jesus. If all you have is Luke, there are 50 references to Jesus at meals in his book. If you go to Matthew, there are 92 references to Jesus eating and drinking with people. In Luke alone, in Luke 2, it starts with him being born in a feeding trough to save the world. In Luke 5, he eats with Levi the tax collector. In chapter 7, our phrase, our, our chapter this morning, he eats with a sinner and a Pharisee. In chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. In chapter 10, he enters the home of Mary and Martha and has a meal and talks about the better good. In chapter 14, he eats a meal and calls his followers to invite those that have nothing to give you and redefines hospitality around a meal that's given and not deserved. In chapter 15, is the story of the prodigal where he celebrates at the end with the biggest meal this kid has ever seen. In chapter 16, he likens the kingdom of God to a meal with the story of Zacchaeus and a rich, Zacchaeus and a rich man. In chapter 19 is what we did last week where he invites himself over to a tax collector's house. In chapter 22 is the Last Supper where he redefines meals for his followers. We'll get into next week. And in chapter 24, we see two meals after the resurrection. One with this couple that's walking to him to Emmaus, and the other when he shows up on the beach with his disciples. And they say, oh my gosh, you're here. And he says, is there any food? I'm hungry. Well, we have to understand and what New Testament scholar Robert Karras writes is, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Christianity's founder, it seems, believed in the power of shared meals. And in fact, if you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only miracle outside of the resurrection empty tomb in all four gospels, if you include John, is the feeding of the 5,000. There is an intricate and undeniable power of meals that we see in the New Testament. Uh, Christopher, or Tim Chester, excuse me, writes a book called A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table. And In the New Testament, in the Gospels, <clears throat> there's this phrase called, the Son of Man came. And that's seen three times. And so when, when you see a phrase that says, the Son of Man came, you, you listen to what's next because it's going to give purpose. And the first one's found in Mark, the Son of Man came. And it says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know that verse. The second is in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We know that verse. God came for you, to die for you, to save you from both your life now, what it would be, and your life one day in eternity. The only other time we see that phraseology of the Son of Man is Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Three times we see this phraseology, the Son of Man. and The first time lets us know his uh, posture towards others, serve or not be served. The second time lets us know his purpose to seek and save the lost. And the third time in Luke 7 lets us know his methodology, right? (laughs) You can't win them all. His methodology that he is coming to eat and drink with people. Here's where I'm getting at. Meals are not a pastime for Jesus. They're the means by which he accomplishes his mission in the New Testament. We have to understand that Jesus very much valued meals. And today I want to ask the question, why? I want to ask the question, do we I want to ask the question, should we? Because we have a different approach to meals than they did in the first century. One New Testament scholar says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures in the Mediterranean basin in the first century in our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremonially rich symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom he had shared a table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Jesus had a high view of meals, the things we do three times a day. And and that hits differently in our culture because we don't value meals anymore. You might think you do, but all the data that you can find points otherwise. There's a study done in 1999, and it came out and said from 1960 to 1990s, and by 2006, it went from a low percentage to 60% of Americans regularly ate on their own. That was three times as many as did in 1960. There was another study that came out two years ago. It surveyed 2,000 U.S. adults, and it said that 88% are so-called zombie eaters. It means they stare at some kind of screen while eating all the time. And get this, out of that, 83% of people say they spent so long trying to figure out what they're going to watch that their food got cold. You've been there. I've been there. You know? So by the time you actually get to the meal, the meal's not as good because you're staring at a screen. 88% of people, it says, in fact, the average U.S. eater will stare at their phones twice over the course of any given meal. And this one hits home and will only have five screen-free meals per week. Here's what I'm getting at is maybe there's something to this meal thing that mattered to Jesus that doesn't matter to us. I'm gonna say this several times. This is not in any way to induce guilt or shame. If you watch The Amazing Race or whatever show you're into while you're eating, good for you. This is an invitation maybe to see something differently and do something differently. This is an invitation to rethink something that we rarely think about, but that is a big part of our life. So when Jesus, in our story, goes to have dinner with the Pharisees, it's a big deal. And it's not an isolated event. It happened hundreds and hundreds of times. So as we get through these stories, this is not a story of God being different. This is a story of God being the same. This is many, many meals that he gets through. And so it says he takes his place at the house of a Pharisee. The next verse in verse 37. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table Then a woman of that town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. So why I like this story as opposed to 17 others I could have picked this morning is that you have two kind of different approaches to how we treat this table and this meal. One is an ordinary kind of just come for a meal and let's call it good. And the other takes intentionality behind it and says I'm gonna treat this meal differently because God is here. And what we see is the difference in their approaches to meals. In the, it's important to note, in the first century, if you hosted somebody, there were four things that you did. The first thing that you did was you'd always extend hospitality to their guests by washing the feet of the person. You would greet, greet them with a holy kiss, um, and you would also uh, wash the, or anoint the head of your guest with oil after you welcomed them in. So you have the welcome, and the washing, and the kiss, and the anointing. The text goes on, it says this in 38, keep that in mind. And she stood behind him at his feet, Weeping, this woman, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed him and anointed them and perfumed them with oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited her in saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and what kind of woman is touching him, that she is a sinner. I mean, you probably know some of the details, but the oil that she poured on Jesus was expensive, probably cost her about a year's salary if she was an average laborer. This was not just something she did because she had some spare time. This is something she thought about. And here's what I want to do. I want to look at this type, and I want to see what she sees and what God sees at this table with her that the Pharisee missed. Because he's in this moment, and he doesn't understand why this woman's taking this so seriously. He's in this moment, and he thinks Jesus should kick her out. He's in this moment, and he doesn't see what Jesus sees in this ordinary meal. And so what we find when we come to the table of God, what we find when we come to eat around uh, a meal with purpose and intentionality, like Jesus did often, I think is three different things that we can see. And the first one is, I think, when we come to the table of Christ, when we come to a meal with the intentionality of Jesus, I think the first thing we find is peace that we wouldn't have otherwise. So you've got to understand the intricacies of the first century world. This was a high-up, powerful person in the Jewish community. This woman was a woman. We've said it before, but there's a rabbinic saying they used to quote every morning. When you woke up, every man would. They would say out loud, they would say, thank God I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Right? They didn't really value women in that culture. That's another sermon for another time. And here this woman comes to this high-position person in the Jewish political and religious system, and she knocks on the door and says, I'm coming in because Jesus is there. More than that, it said four times in our text that he's a Pharisee and she's a sinner. And some scholars would say it goes beyond that. The kind of sin when it says woman of the town in our text is more sexually in nature than anything else. She's at the bottom rung of sinners, things that you literally died for if they caught you in the act. This woman shows up in the middle of what I'm going to say is enemy territory and says it's okay because God is there. And then she lets her hair down, which you didn't do in the first century. She's breaking all of these rules that she should be terrified to break because this Pharisee could have her killed because Jesus is there. And here's what I want to point out first off is that when we find God at our table, why Jesus valued meals is it's a place of peace in a world of chaos. It's a place of security in a world of scared people, her included. And we see that throughout the New and Old Testament, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The psalmist said, I'm sitting with my enemy, but I'm not scared, why? Because God is there at this table. It's this this, uh, picture it paints of being at a meal with God that's been prepared for us, shows us that God's really in control. It's a respite from a scared world that gives security that we find in Christ. In John 14, I won't quote it, but in John 14, he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, a meal for you, Supper of the Lamb, that's next week's sermon. He says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But he says that on the heels of, stop being anxious. I know you're scared. And he says, I know you're scared, but I'm going to go prepare a meal for you. Let that be a comfort for you in the middle of your anxieties because I am actually in control. And at that table, we find security in the middle of our scaredness. You know that's true. You know the power of a meal to transport us back to someplace safe. You know, there was a a meal my mom would make growing up called hamburger stretchies, and it sounds just as gross as it is. Uh, my mom grew up in a home with seven other brothers and sisters in South Dakota, and they were fine, but they were in no way middle class. They were little on the lower end of that for a little while. And I just have two, almost three kids. Kids don't—they just keep eating. And what they don't eat, they throw it on the ground like you have money to burn, you know. And uh, so my mom, my grandmother, who was a great cook, wrote a couple of cookbooks. She would make these things called hamburger stretchies, and she called it that because for her family of nine, you could buy a pound of ground beef eighty twenty by the way, and it could feed your whole family. And get a piece of white bread, and you'd smother some just regular yellow mustard on there. And then you'd take this ground beef and you'd spread it very thinly like peanut butter over the white bread and mustard, and you'd throw it in the broiler for five minutes. And what came out was absolutely disgusting, right? But I love it. And every time I eat it, it transforms me to a different place no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing. Food has this undeniable power to take us to a place of security if we're with people we know and trust. That's what the table does. That's why hopefully if you have a healthy family and you go back to your family's table at Christmas and Thanksgiving or Sundays, it's a good place. It's a break from the scaredness of the world. It provides security. That's what it did for this woman who showed up in a place that was hostile to her. More than that, I think what we find in this story is it doesn't just give us security amongst a scared culture. I think the table represents a shared humanity that we wouldn't have otherwise. The story continues. Jesus answered Simon, who just said, if this guy's a prophet, he would stop because she's a sinner and she is literally touching him, which didn't happen. It's long form text here. Jesus answers with a parable. Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain creditor had two debtors who owed him more than who owed him five hundred silver coins and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt. Jesus said, you've judged correctly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her hair and her tears and wiped them with her hair. In verse 45, you gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet and perfumed it with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves liberal. Little, the whole point of this text is to show Simon that he was reading the room with eyes of status, changes, and difference. And Jesus said, at my table, we all are the same in terms of Jesus and Christ. Hunger has an innate ability to make us all revert back to our basic form of instinct. I live with small kids, and when they get just a little bit hungry, they try to burn my house down, you know? They scream, and they yell, and they hit, and they punch, and they, they look at me like I'm trying to hurt them intentionally because they haven't eaten in seven minutes. <laughs> you know what's true? Give me enough time, and I'll be right there with them. It might take me a day. It might take me two. But hunger comes for all of us, no matter how much money you got in the bank, no matter how many people you run on a staff, no matter what your job is or what your job isn't. The table has this interesting hunger, has this innate ability to show us that we all have similarities that sometimes in a divided culture, socioeconomically, we try to ignore. What we see at the table of Christ is what Christ tried to bring to every table, which is a shared humanity that shows us that we're all made in the same image of God, and then we all deserve the same dignity he gives us. Because it's so easy. It's so easy to believe that we're better than others. Last week we talked about how hospitality in the Christian view was different from the first century hospitality because God said eat with people that can't do anything for you and you're better for it instead of people that can make your life easier or better or richer. He flipped it on its head and he said hospitality isn't about what people can do for you but what you can do for people so that they might see the goodness of God at the table of God. We find equality because we're all made in his image in a world that doesn't see it the same way. So there's this natural equality that happens at this table that Jesus points out to to this person. Hospitality shows the value in others over self. And it moves our motivation from me to those around me, and and it tells me I'm called to care for them. And in a world, in a world that has had the self at the center, we need a catalyst for selflessness. And that's what hospitality does: to show us that we need the same amount of Jesus as everybody else in a world that often defines your goodness by what you've done. One author, a guy named Simon Holt, he wrote God Next Door, Spirituality and Mission in the Neighborhood. He said, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. It provides a context in which people of all backgrounds feel loved and welcomed, where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. So I think it... The table of Christ with this woman finds is security amongst her scaredness. I think she finds equality in a society that didn't view all people as equal, like all people are image bearers of God. And then finally, I think what we find at the table, again, not just this one, but all the tables Jesus eats at, is I think this, this move from empty to full or from broken to redeemed or from empty to wholeness. That's why it ends by saying, your sins are forgiven, but those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Even forgive sins and sins. And Jesus said in verse 50 to the woman, Your faith has saved you, go in peace. When we share a meal around the central idea and themes of God, I think hopefully in little ways it can help repair brokenness the world has brought on. And that might just be between me and my neighbor for fighting. Come over, let's have a meal together. Let me value you and let me prepare for you and let me remember that it's not all about me and let me find our shared humanity and our need for Christ and let this be the beginning of the road to wholeness that we need together. It's a picture of what is to come. It's a picture of how God brings together people that are broken. And so at this table, and you can go to Mark chapter two or Luke chapter five and all the others, what happens when Jesus eats with people is he often leaves them in a more whole place than when he found them, a more healthy place than when he found them more full place than when he found them. Jesus valued meals and what he did at meals was extraordinary. Because when you look back through that list of all the meals in Luke in chapter 2, he takes uh, a feeding trough and he get, makes it a symbol of hope for the world. In chapter 7, he eats with this woman. In chapter 5, he eats with Levi and the same thing. It's a broken man who then finds wholeness in Jesus and nobody can understand it. In chapter 10 with Mary and Martha, he says, hey, there's a better than the good you've been doing. He leaves them more whole than they had at the beginning. In chapter 11, he or in chapter five fourteen, he celebrates the return of the son and says, hey, here's a whole family that was broken before. In chapter 22, he literally gives us a model for ministry and says, this is your hope, even though I'm about to go to the cross, this is what we focus on. Here's the wholeness in the middle, of what seems like brokenness. You can't fix, recover, or repair. There is something better than right now. And in chapter 24 in Luke, when he walks with his couple on the road to Emmaus, he takes them from a fragmented view of God in all the scriptures to a whole view of how God is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. When Jesus eats with people, he makes their life more whole. He brings redemption and restoration. The picture of what is to come. When Jesus eats with people, he does a profound work in their lives. And that's the beautifulness of hospitality and meals. When we are a people of hospitality, we use, and this is what I love about the ordinary, we use the everyday spaces as microphones for God's graces to the world around us. We take those moments that don't intrinsically, seemingly in our culture have value. And we say, watch what an extraordinary God can do with our ordinary. That's what hospitality does. It takes Taco Tuesdays and says, what if Taco Tuesdays was more than Taco Tuesdays? What if the meat we had in this meal signified something much better that Jesus has for you? What we do when we talk about hospitalities, we take the ordinary days in our life, open them up, and watch what God does with them. It's a beautiful message we need to hear in a culture that only seeks out mountaintop moments. We forget that God changes us through meals, day in and day out. Yeah, there is a woman who used to go here, she passed a couple years ago, one of my favorite people in the entire world, named Sharon Gilnet, and she was the best host I've ever met in my life. She was. Like, you go to our house, and it was phenomenal. And we did, a couple years ago, man, I'm old, like eight years ago, we did this uh, leader training that we formed around TED Talks, because the greatest Christian ideas are stolen. And so we just, anybody have Christian t-shirts in the 90s? That's right. Uh, we stole the TED Talk idea, and we did a series of talks, and she did one on hospitality, and, and she told the story about how she just moved here, and they were painting or something at their house, and they were gonna have these people over they didn't know very well, and they knocked on her door. The only problem was, in the middle of painting, they thought the day was next week or tomorrow, a different time than what it was. She starts freaking out, like, what are we gonna do? We don't have things set up, we don't have things prepared, I don't have any food, and she flung her doors open, and she said, that's okay. And it was one of the most memorable moments she had with neighbors or friends because she simply opened her ordinary life to watch God do extraordinary things. Someone I was talking to this week said when they have people over, they always leave a basket of dirty laundry in the corner just to show people (laughs) that, man, I'm not special and I have laundry too. It's a beautiful example of how we as ordinary Christians let God work through us. That maybe God doesn't need the mountaintop moments to shape and form people. Maybe the best version people need to see of God It's faithful Christians living out their messy faith every single day. The VeggieTales dude, uh, Phil Vischer, which I've actually still never seen VeggieTales, I'm gonna get some emails, but I've never seen VeggieTales. But I like, he's got a podcast that I like and he talks about hospitality. He says this, he says, I'm growing increasingly convinced that if every one of these kids these days burning with passion to write hit Christian songs or make hit Christian movies or start that hit Christian ministry, if they were to if they want to change the world they instead focus their passions on walking with God on a daily basis the world would change and i love his reasoning he said because the world learns about God not by watching christian movies but by watching christians So how how do we scale hospitality? It's not inviting people to church. That's good. That's great. I hope you do it. It's opening up our homes so that our homes might be the center point for how people see and meet Jesus. It's this beautiful exchange that we need to know that God works through the ordinary, not just the extraordinary, because that's how we grow in our faith. That's what Jesus did when he walked and talked and ate. And as a follower of Jesus... We invite you, I invite you to think about how God uses ordinary and makes it extraordinary. We need to be a church formed by more than just mountaintop moments. We need a church to set tables and have meals together. We need a church that thrives in the mundane so that we might see the goodness of God in all things. Because we've reduced our pursuit to God to big moments and bright lights and platforms and forgotten that you can't sustain a marriage on a wedding. And maybe the best picture of what marital life looks like isn't your wedding day. Maybe it's all the days in between. We need a picture of God and the little things because that's how we see the true nature and character of God growing people. Hospitality reminds us as a church that we need less show like the Pharisees and we need to do more showing up in the lives of people who need Jesus. We need less production and more persistent presence in our world. That's what hospitality does. It reminds us that our houses should, could, and can be the holy epicenter for God's activity in our world. Just because you open the door a pastor in New York City and started a church called Trinity Grace and he said, what if we stopped attending community groups? We still attend those, by the way. And became groups of communities. I love what he says next. What if our homes stopped being the places uh, we hid from the world, but havens for which the world comes for healing? So when we have this conversation about hospitality, I, I think we have to recognize, realize, and grasp again that hospitality isn't an ornate show so people might see God's goodness. It's opening up our everyday lives so that people see God in everything that we can do. And look, there's a lot of excuses. I'm too busy, my house is too small. Um, I don't have the money for it. My house is so, much, so messy. Look what God does with messes, you know that? That's why I keep my, mess, my house messy all the time. It's an object lesson, I'm not lazy. Um, a Danish proverb says it like this, if there's room in the heart, there's room in the house. The guy that started the No Agenda retreat actually, he lived in Flower Mound and he was a student pastor for a long time, one of the best I've ever seen. He would have a flag in his front yard and he would raise the flag whenever anybody could just come on in and unlock his door. And so all the time, he just raised his flag and people could come and go whenever they wanted to. It was his way of showing hospitality if a meal maybe isn't yours. But I think powerful things happen over meals. Let me end with a story about the writer I quoted at the beginning, Azaria Butterfield. She, if you know her story, she wrote a couple books that are amazing. She wrote one on radical um, hospitality and she (laughs) wrote another on basically how she became a Christian against all odds. She was a college professor that kind of emphasized postmodern critical theory in literature. She was a radical lesbian feminist um, and she was far leftist. All that's to say she probably wouldn't call Crossroads Bible Church her home back in the day. And, and here's what happened to her. She was writing a book on why Christians are terrible people and why Christians aren't living at all and why Christians are something nobody should strive to be or become. And in the middle of that, hospitality grabbed her. I'm going to read some from her because I think it's really powerful. She said, the word Jesus, this is how she thought about Jesus before, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I was tired of students who seemed to believe that, quote, knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert Bible verses into conversations with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. So she began... uh, writing this book, and she actually was doing a hit piece on Promise Keepers, a men's ministry movement back in the day, and she wrote a letter about it in 1997 in a New York newspaper. And because of that, this pastor in New York, his name is Ken, he reached out to her, and this is what she says. She said, here's the eventual result of the letter that she wrote. Ken initiated two years as pastor of bringing the church to me, a heathen. She said, oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on Play car, uh, uh, placards at gay pride marches, the Christians who mocked me. Uh, he said, but he engaged, he didn't mock. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met with my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if it was, as such conversations were polluting to them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repeated and repented his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because of Ken and Floy, they didn't invite me to church. I knew I was safe to be friends around them. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But... The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from my bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there. The church had been praying for me all those years, was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that Jesus could conquer death. He could make right my world. The story of a beautiful person who by the power of hospitality saw the extraordinary work of God in somebody's ordinary meals. She goes on to say this in another book she wrote. Those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to those um, to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open their doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. When we talk about the nature of hospitality, it starts at this table of inviting people in, and then we realize that what we invite people into isn't the extraordinary, isn't the D-Now weekends, and isn't the big concerts, those are good but I think we really see God move in the little moments of the ordinary because they see how extraordinary he really is. I think we celebrated with Dick Knight today when we ordained him, what God can do over time. I want to be a church that finds its love for Jesus, that finds its growth and finds God's goodness more fully in meals than mountaintop moments, that, that we let an extraordinary God work through our ordinary because that's what hospitality is. And in a world of retreats and lights and shows and microphones and fill in the blank of celebrity culture Christianity that we live in. Hospitality reminds us that God's model for ministry might just be one meal at a time. So so let's remember and invite people into our ordinary and watch God work because that's exactly what Jesus did. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you work in the middle of a mess that you call us to invite people in, not to a perfect world, but to a present one where you can show up and show people your goodness. God, I pray today that, may you give us somebody to open up our home to, somebody to show our ordinariness to that needs to see the extraordinariness of God. So give us courage and give us boldness. Give us a passion for hospitality It doesn't have to go above and beyond, it just has to be present so that we might show people that God is good and that God is here in every moment that sees everything that loves everybody overlooked because he loves us, the sinners and the broken that he came to save. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.